Control the coinage and the courts. Let the rabble have the rest. Thus the Padishah Emperor advised you, and he tells you, if you want profits, you must rule. There is truth in these words, but I ask myself, who are the rabble and who are the ruled? Muad'Dib's secret message to the Landsrad from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. A thought came unbidden to Jessica's mind. Paul will be undergoing his Sandrider test at any moment now. They try to conceal this fact from me, but it's obvious. And Cheney has gone on some mysterious errand. Jessica sat in her resting chamber, catching a moment of quiet between the night's classes. It was a pleasant chamber, but not as large as the one she had enjoyed in Siech Tabor before their flight from the pogrom. Still, this place had thick rugs on the floor, soft cushions, a low coffee table near at hand, multicoloured hangings on the walls and soft yellow glow-globes overhead. The room was permeated with a distinctive acrid furry odour of a Fremen siege that she had come to associate with a sense of security. Yet she knew she would never overcome a feeling of being in an alien place. It was the harshness that the rugs and hangings attempted to conceal. A faint, tinkling, drumming, slapping penetrated to the resting chamber. Jessica knew it for a birth celebration, probably Soubier's. Her time was near. And Jessica knew she'd see the baby soon enough, a blue-eyed cherub brought to the Reverend Mother for blessing. She knew also that her daughter, Aaliyah, would be at the celebration and would report on it. It was not yet time for the nightly prayer of parting. They wouldn't have started a birth celebration near the time of ceremony that mourned the slave raids of Poritrin, Velitaguz, Rossak, and Harmonthep. Jessica sighed. She knew she was trying to keep her thoughts off her son and the dangers he faced, the pit traps with their poisoned barbs, the Harkonnen raids, although these were growing fewer as the Fremen took their toll of aircraft and raiders with the new weapons Paul had given them and the natural dangers of the desert-makers, and thirst, and dust-chasms. She thought of calling for coffee, and with the thought came that ever-present awareness of paradox in the Fremen way of life, how well they lived in these Siech caverns compared to the Graben peons, yet how much more they endured in the open Hadra of the desert than anything the Harkonnen bondsmen endured. A dark hand inserted itself through the hangings beside her, deposited a cup upon the table, and withdrew. From the cup arose the aroma of spiced coffee. An offering from the birth celebration, Jessica thought. She took the coffee and sipped it, smiling at herself. In what other society of our universe, she asked herself, could a person of my station accept an anonymous drink and quaff that drink without fear? I could alter any poison now before it did me harm, of course, but the donor doesn't realise this. She drained the cup, feeling the energy and lift of its contents, hot and delicious. And she wondered what other society would have such a natural regard for her privacy and comfort that the giver would intrude only enough to deposit the gift and not inflict her with the donor. Respect and love had sent the gift with only a slight tinge of fear. Another element of the incident forced itself into her awareness. She had thought of coffee, and it had appeared. There was nothing of telepathy here, she knew. It was the Tao, the oneness of the Siech community, a compensation from the subtle poison of the spice diet they shared. The great mass of the people could never hope to attain the enlightenment the spice seed brought to her. They had not been trained and prepared for it. Their minds rejected what they could not understand or encompass. Still, they felt and reacted sometimes like a single organism. And the thought of coincidence never entered their minds. Has Paul passed his test on the sand? Jessica asked herself. He's capable, but accident can strike down even the most capable. The waiting. It's the dreariness, she thought. You can wait just so long. Then the dreariness of the waiting overcomes you. There was all manner of waiting in their lives. More than two years we've been here, she thought, and twice that number at least to go before we can even hope to think of trying to wrest Arrakis from the Harkonnen governor. 
the Mudirnaya, the beast Raban. Reverend Mother, the voice from outside the hangings at her door was that of Hera, the other woman in Paul's menage. Yes, Hera? The hangings parted and Hera seemed to glide through them. She wore siech sandals, a red-yellow wraparound that exposed her arms almost to the shoulders. Her black hair was parted in the middle and swept back like the wings of an insect, flat and oily against her head. The jutting, predatory features were drawn into an intense frown. Behind Hera came Aaliyah, a girl child of about two years. Seeing her daughter, Jessica was caught, as she frequently was, by Aaliyah's resemblance to Paul at that age, the same wide-eyed solemnity to her questing look, the dark hair and firmness of mouth. But there were subtle differences, too, and it was in these that most adults found Aaliyah disquieting. The child, little more than a toddler, carried herself with a calmness and awareness beyond her years. Adults were shocked to find her laughing at a subtle play of words between the sexes, or they'd catch themselves listening to her half-lisping voice, still blurred as it was by an unformed soft palate, and discover in her words sly remarks that could only be based on experiences no two-year-old had ever encountered. Hera sank to a cushion with an exasperated sigh, frowned at the child. Aliyah? Jessica motioned to her daughter. The child crossed to a cushion beside her mother, sank to it, and clasped her mother's hand. The contact of flesh restored that mutual awareness they had shared since before Aaliyah's birth. It wasn't a matter of shared thoughts, although there were bursts of that if they touched while Jessica was changing the spice poison for a ceremony. It was something larger, an immediate awareness of another living spark, a sharp and poignant thing, a nerve simpatico that made them emotionally one. In the formal manner that befitted a member of her son's household, Jessica said, Subak al-Kuhar, Hera, this night finds you well? With the same traditional formality, she said, Subak nar I am well. The words were almost toneless. Again she sighed. Jessica sensed amusement from Aaliyah. My brother's Ganima is annoyed with me, Aaliyah said in her half-lisp. Jessica marked the term Aaliyah used to refer to Hera, Ganima. In the subtleties of the Fremen tongue the word meant something acquired in battle, and with the added overtone that the something no longer was used for its original purpose, an ornament, a spearhead used as a curtain weight. Hera scowled at the child. Don't try to insult me, child, I know my place. What have you done this time, Aaliyah? Jessica asked. Hera answered. Not only has she refused to play with the other children today, but she intruded where I hid behind the hangings and watched Subie's child being born, Aaliyah said. It's a boy. He cried and cried. What a set of lungs. When he cried long enough, she came out and touched him, Hera said, and he stopped crying. Everyone knows a Fremen baby must get his crying done at birth if he's in Siege, because he can never cry again lest he betray us on Hajr. He'd cried enough, Aaliyah said. I just wanted to feel his spark, his life, that's all. And when he felt me, he didn't want to cry any more. It's just made more talk among the people, Hera said. Subie's boy is healthy? Jessica asked. She saw that something was troubling Hera deeply and wondered at it. Healthy as any mother could ask. Hera said. They know Aaliyah didn't hurt him. They didn't so much mind her touching him. He settled down right away and was happy. I was... Hera shrugged. It's the strangeness of my daughter. Is that it? Jessica asked. It's the way she speaks of things beyond her years, and of things no child her age could know. Things of the past. How could she know what a child looked like on Bella Tegus? Hera demanded. But he does, Aaliyah said. Subie's boy looks just like the son of Mitha born before the parting. Aaliyah, Jessica said, I warned you, but mother, I saw it, and it was true, and... Jessica shook her head, seeing the signs of disturbance in Hera's face. What have I borne? Jessica asked herself. A daughter who knew at birth everything that I knew, and more, everything revealed to her out of the corridors of the past by the reverend mothers within me. It's not just the things she says, 
Hera said. It's the exercises, too. The way she sits and stares at a rock, moving only one muscle beside her nose, or a muscle on the back of her finger, or... Those are the Bene Gesserit training, Jessica said. You know that, Hera. Would you deny my daughter her inheritance? Reverend Mother, you know these things don't matter to me, Hera said. It's the people and the way they mutter. I feel danger in it. They say your daughter's a demon, that other children refuse to play with her, that she's... She has so little in common with the other children, Jessica said. She's no demon. It's just the... Of course she's not! Jessica found herself surprised at the vehemence in Hera's tone, glanced down at Aaliyah. The child appeared lost in thought, radiating a sense of... waiting. Jessica returned her attention to Hera. I respect the fact that you're a member of my son's household, Jessica said. Aaliyah stirred against her hand. You may speak openly with me of whatever's troubling you. I will not be a member of your son's household much longer, Hera said. I've waited this long for the sake of my sons, the special training they receive as the children of Usul. It's little enough I could give them since it's known I don't share your son's bed. Again Aaliyah stirred beside her, half-sleeping, warm. You'd have made a good companion for my son, though, Jessica said, and she added to herself, because such thoughts were ever with her, companion, not a wife. Jessica's thoughts went then straight to the centre, to the pang that came from the common talk in the Siege that her son's companionship with Cheney had become a permanent thing, the marriage. I love Cheney, Jessica thought, but she reminded herself that love might have to step aside for royal necessity. Royal marriages had other reasons than love. You think I don't know what you planned for your son? Hera asked. What do you mean? Jessica demanded. You plan to unite the tribes under him, Hera said. Is that bad? I see danger for him, and Aaliyah is part of that danger. Aaliyah nestled closer to her mother, eyes opened now and studying Hera. I've watched you two together, Hera said, the way you touch, and Aaliyah is like my own flesh because she's sister to one who is like my brother. I've watched over her and guarded her from the time she was a mere baby, from the time of the Razia when we fled here. I've seen many things about her. Jessica nodded, feeling disquiet begin to grow in Aaliyah beside her. You know what I mean. Hera said, the way she knew from the first what we were saying to her. When has there been another baby who knew the water discipline so young? What other baby's first words to her nurse were, I love you, Hera. Hera stared at Aaliyah. Why do you think I accept her insults? I know there's no malice in them. Aaliyah looked up at her mother. Yes, I have reasoning powers, Reverend Mother, Hera said. I could have been of the Syedina. I have seen what I have seen. Hera, Jessica shrugged, I don't know what to say. And she felt surprised at herself, because this literally was true. Aaliyah straightened, squared her shoulders. Jessica felt the sense of waiting ended, an emotion compounded of decisions and sadness. We made a mistake, Aaliyah said. Now we need Hera. It was the ceremony of the seed. Hera said, when you changed the water of life, Reverend Mother, when Aaliyah was yet unborn within you. Need Hera? Jessica asked herself. Who else can talk among the people and make them begin to understand me? Aaliyah asked. What would you have her do? Jessica asked. She already knows what to do, Aaliyah said. I will tell them the truth, Hera said. Her face seemed suddenly old and sad, with its olive skin drawn into frown wrinkles, a witchery in the sharp features. I will tell them that Aaliyah only pretends to be a little girl, that she has never been a little girl. Aaliyah shook her head. Tears ran down her cheeks, and Jessica felt the wave of sadness from her daughter as though the emotion were her own. I know I'm a freak, Aaliyah whispered. The adult summation coming from the child mouth was like a bitter confirmation. You're not a freak, Hera snapped. Who dared say you're a freak? Again, Jessica marveled at the fierce note of protectiveness in Hera's voice. 
Jessica saw then that Alia had judged correctly. They did need Hera. The tribe would understand Hera, both her words and her emotions, for it was obvious she loved Alia as though this were her own child. Who said it? Hera repeated. Nobody? Alia used a corner of Jessica's abba to wipe the tears from her face. She smoothed the robe where she had dampened and crumpled it. Then don't you say it, Hera ordered. Yes, Hera. Now, Hera said, you may tell me what it was like so that I may tell the others. Tell me what it is that happened to you. Alia swallowed, looked up at her mother. Jessica nodded. One day I woke up, Alia said. It was like waking from sleep, except that I could not remember going to sleep. I was in a warm, dark place, and I was frightened. Listening to the half-lisping voice of her daughter, Jessica remembered that day in the big cavern. When I was frightened, Alia said, I tried to escape, but there was no way to escape. Then I saw a spark, but it wasn't exactly like seeing it. The spark was just there with me, and I felt the spark's emotions, soothing me, comforting me, telling me that way that everything would be all right. That was my mother. Hera rubbed at her eyes, smiled reassuringly at Alia. Yet there was a look of wildness in the eyes of the Fremen woman, an intensity as though they too were trying to hear Alia's words. And Jessica thought, what do we really know of how such a one thinks? out of her unique experiences and training and ancestry. Just when I felt safe and reassured, Alia said, there was another spark with us, and everything was happening at once. The other spark was the old Reverend Mother. She was trading lives with my mother, everything, and I was there with them, seeing it all, everything, and it was over, and I was them, and all the others, and myself. Only it took me a long time to find myself again. There were so many others. It was a cruel thing, Jessica said. No one should wake into consciousness thus. The wonder of it is you could accept all that happened to you. I couldn't do anything else, Alia said. I didn't know how to reject or hide my consciousness, or shut it off. Everything just happened. Everything we didn't know, Hera murmured. When we gave your mother the water to change, we didn't know you existed within her. Don't be sad about it, Hera, Aaliyah said. I shouldn't feel very sorry for myself. After all, there's cause for happiness here. I'm a reverend mother. The tribe has two rev— She broke off, tipped her head to listen. Hera rocked back on her heels against the sitting cushion, stared at Alia, bringing her attention then up to Jessica's face. Didn't you suspect? Jessica asked. Shh, Alia said. A distant, rhythmic chanting came to them through the hangings that separated them from the CH corridors. It grew louder, carrying distinct sounds now. Yo-yo-yom! Yo-yo-yom! Mutain! Walla! Yo-yo-yom! Mutain! Walla! The chanters passed the outer entrance, and their voices boomed through to the inner apartments. Slowly the sound receded. When the sound had dimmed sufficiently, Jessica began the ritual, the sadness in her voice. It was Ramadan and April on Bella Tegus. My family sat in their pool courtyard, Hera said, in air bathed by the moisture that arose from the spray of a fountain. There was a tree of portugals, round and deep in colour, near at hand. There was a basket with mishmish and baklava, and mugs of liban, all manner of good things to eat. In our gardens and in our flocks there was peace, peace in all the land. Life was full with happiness until the raiders came, Alia said. Blood ran cold at the scream of friends, Jessica said and she felt the memories rushing through her out of all those other pasts she shared. La, 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 the women cried, said Hera. The raiders came through the Mushtamal, rushing at us with their knives dripping red from the lives of our men, Jessica said. Silence came over the three of them, 
as it was in all the apartments of the Siege, the silence while they remembered and kept their grief thus fresh. Presently Hera uttered the ritual ending to the ceremony, giving the words a harshness that Jessica had never before heard in them. We will never forgive, and we will never forget, Hera said. In the thoughtful quiet that followed her words, they heard a muttering of people, the swish of many robes. Jessica sensed someone standing beyond the hangings that shielded her chamber. Reverend Mother? A woman's voice, and Jessica recognized it, the voice of Thar-Thar, one of Stilgar's wives. What is it, Thar-Thar? There is trouble, Reverend Mother. Jessica felt a constriction at her heart, an abrupt fear for Paul. Paul, she gasped. Thar-Thar spread the hangings, stepped into the chamber. Jessica glimpsed a press of people in the outer room before the hangings fell. She looked up at Thar-Thar, a small, dark woman in a red-figured robe of black, the total blue of her eyes trained fixedly on Jessica, the nostrils of her tiny nose dilated to reveal the plug scars. What is it? Jessica demanded. There is word from the sand, Thatha said. Usul meets the maker for his test. It is today. The young men say he cannot fail. He will be a sand rider by nightfall. The young men are banding for a razia. They will raid in the north and meet Usul there. They say they will raise the cry then. They say they will force him to call out Stilgar and assume command of the tribes. Gathering water, planting the dunes, changing their world slowly but surely. These are no longer enough, Jessica thought. The little raids, the certain raids, these are no longer enough now that Paul and I have trained them. They feel their power. They want to fight. Thar-Thar shifted from one foot to the other, cleared her throat. We know the need for cautious waiting, Jessica thought. But there's the core of our frustration. We know also the harm that waiting extended too long can do us. We lose our sense of purpose if the waiting's prolonged. The young men say if Usul does not call out Stilgar, then he must be afraid, Thar-Thar said. She lowered her gaze. So that's the way of it, Jessica muttered. And she thought, well, I saw it coming, as did Stilgar. Again, Thar-Thar cleared her throat. Even my brother, Shoab, says it, she said. They will leave Usul no choice. Then it has come, Jessica thought, and Paul will have to handle it himself. The Reverend Mother dare not become involved in the succession. Aaliyah freed her hand from her mother's, said, I will go with Thar-Thar and listen to the young men. Perhaps there is a way. Jessica met Thartha's gaze, but spoke to Aaliyah. Go then, and report to me as soon as you can. We do not want this thing to happen, Reverend Mother, Thartha said. We do not want it, Jessica agreed. The tribe needs all its strength. She glanced at Hera. Will you go with them? Hera answered the unspoken part of the question. Tharthar will allow no harm to befall Aaliyah. She knows we will soon be wives together she and I, to share the same man. We have talked, Thathar and I. Hera looked up at Thathar, back to Jessica. We have an understanding. Thathar held out a hand for Aaliyah, said, We must hurry, the young men are leaving. They pressed through the hangings, the child's hand in the small woman's hand. But the child seemed to be leading. If Paul Muad'Dib slays Stilgar, this will not serve the tribe. Hera said. Always before, it has been the way of succession. But times have changed. Times have changed for you as well, Jessica said. You cannot think I doubt the outcome of such a battle, Hera said. Usul could not but win. That was my meaning, Jessica said. And you think my personal feelings enter into my judgment, Hera said. She shook her head, her water rings tinkling at her neck. How wrong you are. Perhaps you think as well that I regret not being the chosen of Usul, that I am jealous of Cheney. You make your own choice as you are able, Jessica said. I pity Cheney, Hera said. Jessica stiffened. What do you mean? I know what you think of Cheney, Hera said. You think she is not the wife for your son. Jessica settled back, relaxed on her cushions. She shrugged. Perhaps... You could be right, 
Hera said. If you are, you may find a surprising ally, Cheney herself. She wants whatever is best for him. Jessica swallowed past a sudden tightening in her throat. Chain is very dear to me, she said. She could be no... Your rugs are very dirty in here, Hera said. She swept her gaze around the floor, avoiding Jessica's eyes. So many people tramping through here all the time. You really should have them cleaned more often. You cannot avoid the interplay of politics within an orthodox religion. This power struggle permeates the training, educating and disciplining of the orthodox community. Because of this pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face that ultimate internal question. To succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their rule, or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the orthodox ethic. From Muad'Dib, The Religious Issues, by the Princess Irulan. Paul waited on the sand outside the gigantic maker's line of approach. I must not wait like a smuggler, impatient and jittering, he reminded himself. I must be part of the desert. The thing was only minutes away now, filling the morning with a friction hissing of its passage. Its great teeth within the cavern circle of its mouth spread like some enormous flower. The spice odour from it dominated the air. Paul's stillsuit rode easily on his body, and he was only distantly aware of his nose-plugs, the breathing mask. Stilgar's teaching, the painstaking hours on the sand, overshadowed all else. "'How far outside the Maker's radius must you stand in peace-and?' Stilgar had asked him. And he had answered correctly, "'Half a metre for every metre of the Maker's diameter.' "'Why?' "'To avoid the vortex of its passage and still have time to run in and mount it.' "'You've ridden the little ones, bred for the seed and the water of life,' Stilgar had said. "'But what you'll summon for your test is a wild-maker, an old man of the desert. "'You must have proper respect for such a one.' "'Now the thumper's deep drumming blended with a hiss of the approaching worm. "'Paul breathed deeply, smelling mineral bitterness of sand even through his filters.' The wild maker, the old man of the desert, loomed almost on him, its cresting front segments through a sand wave that would sweep across his knees. Come up, you lovely monster, he thought. Up. You hear me calling. Come up. Come up. The wave lifted his feet. Surface dust swept across him. He steadied himself, his world dominated by the passage of that sand-clouded curving wall, that segmented cliff, the ring lines sharply defined in it. Paul lifted his hooks, sighted along them, leaned in. He felt them bite and pull. He leaped upward, planting his feet against that wall, leaning out against the clinging barbs. This was the true instant of the testing. If he had planted the hooks correctly at the leading edge of a ring segment opening the segment, the worm would not roll down and crush him. The worm slowed. It glided across the thumper, silencing it. Slowly it began to roll. Up. Up. Bringing those irritant barbs as high as possible, away from the sand that threatened the soft inner lapping of its ring segment. Paul found himself riding upright, atop the worm. He felt exultant, like an emperor surveying his world. He suppressed a sudden urge to cavort there, to turn the worm, to show off his mastery of this creature. Suddenly he understood why Stilgar had warned him once about brash young men who danced and played with these monsters, doing handstands on their backs, removing both hooks and replanting them before the worm could spill them. Leaving one hook in place, Paul released the other and planted it lower down the side. When the second hook was firm and tested, he brought down the first one, thus worked his way down the side. The maker rolled, and as it rolled, it turned, coming around the sweep of flower sand where the others waited. Paul saw them come up, using their hooks to climb, but avoiding the sensitive ring edges until they were on top. They rode at last in a triple line behind him, steadied against their hooks. Stilgar moved up through the ranks, checking the positioning of Paul's hooks, glanced up at Paul's smiling face. "'You did it, eh?' Stilgar asked, raising his voice above the hiss of their passage. "'That's what you think? You did it?' He straightened. 
Now I tell you that was a very sloppy job. We have twelve-year-olds who do better. There was drum sand to your left where you waited. You could not retreat there if the worm turned that way. The smile slipped from Paul's face. I saw the drum sand. Then why did you not signal for one of us to take up a position secondary to you? It was a thing you could do even in the test. Paul swallowed, faced into the wind of their passage. You think it bad of me to say this now, Stilgar said. It is my duty. I think of your worth to the troop. If you had stumbled into that drum sand, the maker would have turned toward you. In spite of a surge of anger, Paul knew that Stilgar spoke the truth. It took a long minute and the full effort of the training he had received from his mother for Paul to recapture a feeling of calm. I apologize, he said. It will not happen again. In a tight position, always leave yourself a secondary, someone to take the maker if you cannot, Stilgar said. Remember that we work together. That way we're certain. We work together, eh? He slapped Paul's shoulder. We work together, Paul agreed. Now, Stilgar said, and his voice was harsh, show me you know how to handle a maker. Which side are we on? Paul glanced down at the scaled ring surface on which they stood, noted the character and size of the scales, the way they grew larger off to his right, smaller to his left. Every worm he knew moved characteristically with one side up more frequently, as it grew older, the characteristic upside became an almost constant thing. Bottom scales grew larger, heavier, smoother. Top scales could be told by size alone on a big worm. Shifting his hooks, Paul moved to the left. He motioned flankers down to open segments along the side and keep the worm on a straight course as it rolled. When he had it turned, he motioned two steersmen out of the line and into positions ahead. Ach! Hi-yo! he shouted in the traditional call. The left side steersman opened a ring segment there. In a majestic circle, the maker turned to protect its open segment. Full around it came, and when it was headed back to the south, Paul shouted, Gero! The steersman released his hook. The maker lined out in a straight course. Stilgar said, Very good, Paul Muad'Dib. With plenty of practice, you may yet become a sand rider. Paul frowned, thinking, was I not first up? From behind him there came sudden laughter. The troop began chanting, flinging his name against the sky. One deeb, one deeb, one deeb, one deeb. And far to the rear along the worm's surface, Paul heard the beat of the goaders pounding the tail segments. The worm began picking up speed. Their robes flapped in the wind. The abrasive sound of their passage increased. Paul looked back through the troop, found Cheney's face among them. He looked at her as he spoke to Stilgar. Then I am a sand rider still? Halyom! You are a sand rider this day. Then I may choose our destination? That's the way of it. And I am a Fremen born this day here in the Habanya Erg. I have had no life before this day. I was as a child until this day. Not quite a child, Stilgar said. He fastened a corner of his hood where the wind was whipping it. But there was a cork sealing off my world, and that cork has been pulled. There is no cork. I would go south, Stilgar, twenty thumpers. I would see this land we make, this land that I've only seen through the eyes of others. And I would see my son and my family, he thought. I need time now to consider the future that is a past within my mind. The turmoil comes, and if I'm not where I can unravel it, the thing will run wild. Stilgar looked at him with a steady, measuring gaze. Paul kept his attention on Cheney, seeing the interest quicken in her face, noting also the excitement his words had kindled in the troop. The men are eager to raid with you in the Harkonnen sinks, Stilgar said. The sinks are only a thumper away. The Vadaikin have raided with me, Paul said. They'll raid with me again until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. Stilgar studied him as they rode, and Paul realized that the man was seeing this moment through the memory of how he had risen to command of the Tabor Siech and to leadership of the Council of Leaders now that Liet Kynes was dead. He has heard the reports of unrest among the young Fremen, Paul thought. 
Do you wish a gathering of the leaders? Stilgar asked. Eyes blazed among the young men of the troop. They swayed as they rode, and they watched, and Paul saw the look of unrest in Cheney's glance, the way she looked from Stilgar, who was her uncle, to Paul Muadib, who was her mate. You cannot guess what I want, Paul said, and he thought, I cannot back down. I must hold control over these people. You are Mudir of the Sandride this day, Stilgar said. Cold formality rang in his voice. How do you use this power? We need time to relax, time for cool reflection, Paul thought. We shall go south, Paul said. Even if I say we shall turn back to the north when this day is over? We shall go south, Paul repeated. A sense of inevitable dignity enfolded Stilgar as he pulled his robe tightly around him. There will be a gathering, he said. I will send the messages. He thinks I will call him out, Paul thought, and he knows he cannot stand against me. Paul faced south, feeling the wind against his exposed cheeks, thinking of the necessities that went into his decisions. They do not know how it is, he thought. But he knew he could not let any consideration deflect him. He had to remain on the central line of the time storm he could see in the future. There would come an instant when it could be unravelled, but only if he were where he could cut the central knot of it. I will not call him out if it can be helped, he thought. If there's another way to prevent the jihad. We'll camp for the evening meal and prayer at Cave of Birds beneath Habania Ridge, Stilgar said. He steadied himself with one hook against the swaying of the maker, gestured ahead at a low rock barrier rising out of the desert. Paul studied the cliff, the great streaks of rock crossing it like waves. No green, no blossom softened that rigid horizon. Beyond it stretched the way to the southern desert, a course of at least ten days and nights as fast as they could goad the makers. Twenty thumpers. The way led far beyond the Harkonnen patrols. He knew how it would be. The dreams had shown him. One day, as they went, there'd be a faint change of colour on the far horizon, such a slight change that he might feel he was imagining it out of his hopes. And there would be the new Siege. Does my decision suit Muad'Dib? Stilgar asked. Only the faintest touch of sarcasm tinged his voice, but Fremen ears around them, alert to every tone in a bird's cry, or a Cielago's piping message, heard the sarcasm and watched Paul to see what he would do. Stilgar heard me swear my loyalty to him when we consecrated the Fadaikin, Paul said. My death commandos know I spoke with honour. Does Stilgar doubt it? Real pain exposed itself in Paul's voice. Stilgar heard it and lowered his gaze. Usul, the companion of my siege, him I would never doubt, Stilgar said. But you are Paul Muad'Dib, the Atreides Duke, and you are the Lisan al-Gaib, the voice from the outer world. These men I don't even know. Paul turned away to watch the Habanya Ridge climb out of the desert. The maker beneath them still felt strong and willing. It could carry them almost twice the distance of any other in Fremen experience. He knew it. There was nothing outside the stories told to children that could match this old man of the desert. It was the stuff of a new legend, Paul realized. A hand gripped his shoulder. Paul looked at it, followed the arm to the face beyond it, the dark eyes of Stilgar exposed between filter mask and stillsuit hood. The one who led Tabur Siech before me, Stilgar said. He was my friend. We shared dangers. He owed me his life many a time, and I owed him mine. I am your friend, Stilgar, Paul said. No man doubts it, Stilgar said. He removed his hand, shrugged. It's the way. Paul saw that Stilgar was too immersed in the Fremen way to consider the possibility of any other. Here a leader took the reins from the dead hands of his predecessor, or slew among the strongest of his tribe if a leader died in the desert. Stilgar had risen to be a naïb in that way. "'We should leave this maker in deep sand,' Paul said. "'Yes,' Stilgar agreed. "'We could walk to the cave from here. "'We've ridden him far enough that he'll bury himself and sulk for a day or so,' 
Paul said. You're the Moudir of the Sand Ride, Stilgar said. Say when we... He broke off, stared at the eastern sky. Paul whirled. The spice-blue overcast of his eyes made the sky appear dark, a richly filtered azure against which a distant rhythmic flashing stood out in sharp contrast. Ornithopter. One small thopter, Stilgar said. Could be a scout, Paul said. Do you think they've seen us? At this distance we're just a worm on the surface, Stilgar said. He motioned with his left hand. Off. Scatter on the sand. The troop began working down the worm's sides, dropping off, blending with the sand beneath their cloaks. Paul marked where Cheney dropped. Presently only he and Stilgar remained. First up, last off, Paul said. Stilgar nodded, dropping down the side on his hooks, leaping onto the sand. Paul waited until the maker was safely clear of the scatter area, then released his hooks. This was the tricky moment, with a worm not completely exhausted. Freed of its goads and hooks, the big worm began burrowing into the sand. Paul ran lightly back along its broad surface, judged his moment carefully, and leaped off. He landed running, lunged against the slip face of a dune the way he had been taught, and hid himself beneath the cascade of sand over his robe. Now the waiting... Paul turned gently, exposed a crack of sky beneath a crease in his robe. He imagined the others back along their path doing the same. He heard the beat of the thopter's wings before he saw it. There was a whisper of jet pods, and it came over his patch of desert, turned in a broad arc toward the ridge. An unmarked thopter, Paul noted. It flew out of sight beyond Habanya Ridge. A bird cry sounded over the desert. Another. Paul shook himself free of sand, climbed to the dune top. Other figures stood out in a line trailing away from the ridge. He recognized Cheney and Stilgar among them. Stilgar signaled toward the ridge. They gathered and began the sand walk, gliding over the surface in a broken rhythm that would disturb no maker. Stilgar paced himself beside Paul along the wind-packed crest of a dune. It was a smuggler craft, Stilgar said. So it seemed... Paul said, but this is deep into the desert for smugglers. They've their difficulties with patrols, too, Stilgar said. If they come this deep, they may go deeper, Paul said. True. It wouldn't be well for them to see what they could see if they ventured too deep into the south. Smugglers sell information, too. They were hunting spice, don't you think? Stilgar asked. There will be a wing and a crawler waiting somewhere for that one, Paul said. We've spice. Let's bait a patch of sand and catch us some smugglers. They should be taught that this is our land, and our men need practice with the new weapons. Now Usul speaks, Stilgar said. Usul thinks Fremen. But Usul must give way to decisions that match a terrible purpose, Paul thought. And the storm was gathering. When law and duty are one, united by religion, you never become fully conscious, fully aware of yourself. You are always a little less than an individual. From Muad'Dib, The 99 Wonders of the Universe, by Princess Irulan. The smuggler's spice factory, with its parent carrier and ring of drone ornithopters, came over a lifting of dunes like a swarm of insects following its queen. Ahead of the swarm lay one of the low rock ridges that lifted from the desert floor like small imitations of the shield wall. The dry beaches of the ridge were swept clean by a recent storm. In the con bubble of the factory, Gurney Halleck leaned forward, adjusted the oil lenses of his binoculars and examined the landscape. Beyond the ridge, he could see a dark patch that might be a spice blow and he gave the signal to a hovering ornithopter that sent it to investigate. The thopter waggled its wings to indicate it had the signal. It broke away from the swarm, sped down toward the darkened sand, circled the area with its detectors dangling close to the surface. Almost immediately, it went through the wing-tucked dip and circle that told the waiting factory that spice had been found. Gurney sheathed his binoculars, knowing the others had seen the signal. He liked this spot. The ridge offered some shielding and protection. This was deep in the desert, an unlikely place for an ambush. Still, 
Gurney signalled for a crew to hover over the ridge to scan it, sent reserves to take up station in pattern around the area, not too high because then they could be seen from afar by Harkonnen detectors. He doubted, though, that Harkonnen patrols would be this far south. This was still Fremen country. Gurney checked his weapons, damning the fate that made shields useless out here. Anything that summoned a worm had to be avoided at all costs. He rubbed the ink-vine scar along his jaw, studying the scene, decided it would be safest to lead a ground party through the ridge. Inspection on foot was still the most certain. You couldn't be too careful when Fremen and Harkonnen were at each other's throats. It was Fremen that worried him here. They didn't mind trading for all the spice you could afford, but they were devils on the warpath if you stepped foot where they forbade you to go, and they were so devilishly cunning of late. It annoyed Gurney, the cunning and adroitness in battle of these natives. They displayed a sophistication in warfare as good as anything he had ever encountered, and he had been trained by the best fighters in the universe, then seasoned in battles where only the superior few survived. Again, Gurney scanned the landscape, wondering why he felt uneasy. Perhaps it was the worm they had seen, but that was on the other side of the ridge. A head popped up into the con bubble beside Gurney, the factory commander, a one-eyed old pirate with full beard, the blue eyes and milky teeth of a spice diet. Looks like a rich patch, sir. Shall I take her in? Come down at the edge of that ridge. Let me disembark with my men. You can track her out to the spice from there. We'll have a look at that rock. Aye. In case of trouble, save the factory. We'll lift in the thopters. The factory commander saluted. Aye, sir. He popped back down through the hatch. Again, Gurney scanned the horizon. He had to respect the possibility that there were Fremen here and he was trespassing. Fremen worried him, their toughness and unpredictability. Many things about this business worried him, but the rewards were great. The fact that he couldn't send spotters high overhead worried him too. The necessity of radio silence added to his uneasiness. The factory crawler turned, began to descend. Gently it glided down to the dry beach at the foot of the ridge. Treads touched sand. Gurney opened the bubble dome, released his safety straps. The instant the factory stopped, he was out, slamming the bubble closed behind him, scrambling out over the tread guards to swing down to the sand beyond the emergency netting. The five men of his personal guard were out with him, emerging from the nose hatch. Others released the factory's carrier wing. It detached, lifted away to fly in a parking circle low overhead. Immediately, the big factory crawler lurched off, swinging away from the ridge toward the dark patch of spice out on the sand. A thopter swooped down nearby, skidded to a stop. Another followed, and another. They disgorged Gurney's platoon and lifted to hover flight. Gurney tested his muscles in his stillsuit, stretching. He left the filter mask off his face, losing moisture for the sake of a greater need, the carrying power of his voice if he had to shout commands. He began climbing up into the rocks, checking the terrain, pebbles and pea sand underfoot, the smell of spice. Good sight for an emergency base, he thought. Might be sensible to bury a few supplies here. He glanced back, watching his men spread out as they followed him. Good men. Even the new ones he hadn't had time to test. Good men. Didn't have to be told every time what to do. Not a shield glimmer showed on any of them. No cowards in this bunch. Carrying shields into the desert where a worm could sense the field and come to rob them of the spice they found. From this slight elevation in the rocks, Gurney could see the spice patch about half a kilometre away and the crawler just reaching the near edge. He glanced up at the cover flight, noting the altitude, not too high. He nodded to himself, turned to resume his climb up the ridge. In that instant, the ridge erupted. Twelve roaring paths of flame streaked upward to the hovering thopters and carrier wing. They came a blasting of metal from the factory crawler, and the rocks around Gurney were full of hooded, fighting men. Gurney had time to think, by the horns of the Great Mother, rockets! They dare to use rockets! Then he was face to face with a hooded figure who crouched low, Chris' knife at the ready. 
Two more men stood waiting on the rocks above to left and right. Only the eyes of the fighting man ahead of him were visible to Gurney between hood and veil of a sand-coloured burnous, but the crouch and readiness warned him that here was a trained fighting man. The eyes were the blue-in-blue blue of the deep desert Fremen. Gurney moved one hand toward his own knife, kept his eyes fixed on the other's knife. If they dared use rockets, they'd have other projectile weapons. This moment argued extreme caution. He could tell by sound alone that at least part of his sky cover had been knocked out. There were gruntings, too, the noise of several struggles behind him. The eyes of the fighting man ahead of Gurney followed the motion of hand toward knife, came back to glare into Gurney's eyes. Leave the knife in its sheath, Gurney Halleck. Gurney hesitated. That voice sounded oddly familiar, even through a still-suit filter. You know my name? You've no need of a knife with me, Gurney. The man straightened, slipped his Chris knife into its sheath back beneath his robe. Tell your men to stop their useless resistance. The man threw his hood back, swung the filter aside. The shock of what he saw froze Gurney's muscles. He thought at first he was looking at a ghost image of Duke Leto Atreides. Full recognition came slowly. Paul? Is it truly Paul? Don't you trust your own eyes? I said you were dead. Gurney took a half step forward. Tell your men to submit. Paul waved toward the lower reaches of the ridge. Gurney turned, reluctant to take his eyes off Paul. He saw only a few knots of struggle. Hooded desert men seemed to be everywhere around. The factory crawler lay silent, with Fremen standing atop it. There were no aircraft overhead. Stop the fighting! He took a deep breath, cupped his hands for a megaphone. This is Gurney Halleck! Stop the fight! Slowly, warily, the struggling figures separated, eyes turned toward him, questioning. These are friends! Fine friends! Half our people murdered! It's a mistake! Don't add to it! He turned back to Paul, stared into the youth's blue, blue Fremen eyes. A smile touched Paul's mouth, but there was a hardness in the expression that reminded Gurney of the old Duke, Paul's grandfather. Gurney saw then the sinewy harshness in Paul that had never before been seen in an Atreides. A leathery look to the skin, a squint to the eyes, and calculation in the glance that seemed to weigh everything in sight. They said you were dead. And it seemed the best protection to let them think so. Gurney realized that was all the apology he'd ever get for having been abandoned to his own resources, left to believe his young duke, his friend, was dead. He wondered then if there were anything left here of the boy he had known and trained in the ways of fighting men. Paul took a step closer to Gurney, found that his eyes were smarting. Gurney! It seemed to happen of itself. And they were embracing, pounding each other on the back, feeling the reassurance of solid flesh. You young pup. You young pup. Gurney man. Gurney man. Presently they stepped apart, looked at each other. Gurney took a deep breath. So you're why the Fremen have grown so wise in battle tactics. I might have known. They keep doing things I could have planned myself. If I'd only known... He shook his head. If you'd only got word to me, lad, nothing would have stopped me. I'd have come running and... A look in Paul's eyes stopped him. The hard, weighing stare. Sure. And there'd have been those who wondered why Gurney Halleck went a-running, and some would have done more than question. They'd have gone hunting for answers. Paul nodded, glanced to the waiting Fremen around them, the looks of curious appraisal on the faces of the Fedaikin. He turned from the Death Commandos back to Gurney. Finding his former swordmaster filled him with elation. He saw it as a good omen, a sign that he was on the course of the future where all was well. With Gurney at my side. Paul glanced down the ridge past the Fedaikin, studied the smuggler crew who had come with Halleck. How do your men stand, Gurney? They're smugglers all. They stand where the Prophet is. 
Little enough profit in our venture. Paul noted the subtle finger signal flashed to him by Gurney's right hand, the old hand code out of their past. There were men to fear and distrust in the smuggler crew. Paul pulled at his lip to indicate he understood, looked up at the men standing guard above them on the rocks. He saw Stilgar there. Memory of the unsolved problem with Stilgar cooled some of Paul's elation. Stilgar, this is Gurney Halleck of whom you've heard me speak. My father's master of arms, one of the swordmasters who instructed me, an old friend. He can be trusted in any venture. I hear. You are his duke. Paul stared at the dark visage above him, wondering at the reasons which had impelled Stilgar to say just that. His duke. There had been a strange, subtle intonation in Stilgar's voice, as though he would rather have said something else. And that wasn't like Stilgar, who was a leader of Fremen, a man who spoke his mind. My duke, Gurney thought. He looked anew at Paul. Yes, with Leto dead, the title fell on Paul's shoulders. The pattern of the Fremen war on Arrakis began to take on new shape in Gurney's mind. My duke. A place that had been dead within him began coming alive. Only part of his awareness focused on Paul's ordering the smuggler crew disarmed until they could be questioned. Gurney's mind returned to the command when he heard some of his men protesting. He shook his head, whirled. Are you men deaf? This is the rightful Duke of Arrakis. Do as he commands. Grumbling, the smugglers submitted. Paul moved up beside Gurney, spoke in a low voice. I'd not have expected you to walk into this trap, Gurney. I'm properly chastened. I'll wager yon patch of spice is little more than a sand grain's thickness. A bait to lure us. That's a wager you'd win. Paul looked down at the men being disarmed. Are there any more of my father's men among your crew? None. We're spread thin. There are a few among the free traders. Most have spent their profits to leave this place. But you stayed. I stayed. Because Raban is here. I thought I had nothing left but revenge. An oddly chopped cry sounded from the ridgetop. Gurney looked up to see a Fremen waving his handkerchief. A maker comes. Paul moved out to a point of rock with Gurney following, looked off to the southwest. A burrow mound of a worm could be seen in the middle distance, a dust-crowned track that cut directly through the dunes on a course toward the ridge. He's big enough. A clattering sound lifted from the factory crawler below them. It turned on its treads like a giant insect, lumbered toward the rocks. Too bad we couldn't have saved the carry-all. Gurney glanced at him, looked back to the patches of smoke and debris out on the desert where Carriol and Ornithopters had been brought down by Fremen rockets. He felt a sudden pang for the men lost there. His men. Your father would have been more concerned for the men he couldn't save. Paul shot a hard stare at him, lowered his gaze. They were your friends, Gurney. I understand. To us, though, they were trespassers who might see things they shouldn't see. You must understand that. I understand it well enough. Now I'm curious to see what I shouldn't. Paul looked up to see the old and well-remembered wolfish grin on Halleck's face, the ripple of the ink-vine scar along the man's jaw. Gurney nodded toward the desert below them. Fremen were going about their business all over the landscape. It struck him that none of them appeared worried by the approach of the worm. A thumping sounded from the open dunes beyond the baited patch of spice, a deep drumming that seemed to be heard through their feet. Gurney saw Fremen spread out across the sand there in the path of the worm. The worm came on like some great sandfish, cresting the surface, its rings rippling and twisting. In a moment, from his vantage point above the desert, Gurney saw the taking of a worm, the daring leap of the first hookman, the turning of the creature, the way an entire band of men went up the scaly, glistening curve of the worm's side. There's one of the things you shouldn't have seen. There's been stories and rumors. But it's not a thing easy to believe without seeing it. The creature all men on Arrakis fear 
You treat it like a riding animal. You heard my father speak of desert power. There it is. The surface of this planet is ours. No storm nor creature nor condition can stop us. Us, Gurney thought. He means the Fremen. He speaks of himself as one of them. Again, Gurney looked at the spice blue in Paul's eyes. His own eyes, he knew, had a touch of the color, but smugglers could get off-world foods and there was a subtle caste implication in the tone of the eyes among them. They spoke of the touch of the spice brush to mean a man had gone too native, and there was always a hint of distrust in the idea. There was a time when we did not ride the Maker in the light of day in these latitudes. But Raban has little enough air cover left that he can waste it looking for a few specks in the sand. Your aircraft were a shock to us here. He looked at Gurney. To us. To us. Gurney shook his head to drive out such thoughts. We weren't the shock to you that you were to us. What's the talk of Raban in the sinks and villages? They say they fortified the Graben villages to the point where you cannot harm them. They say they need only sit inside their defenses while you wear yourselves out in futile attack. In a word, they're immobilized. Well, you can go where you will. It's a tactic I learned from you. They've lost the initiative, which means they've lost the war. Gurney smiled, a slow, knowing expression. Our enemy is exactly where I want him to be. Paul glanced at Gurney. Well, Gurney, do you enlist with me for the finish of this campaign? Gurney stared at him. Enlist? My lord, I've never left your service. You're the only one left me. To think you dead. And I being cast adrift made what shrift I could, waiting for the moment I might sell my life for what it's worth. The death of Raban. An embarrassed silence settled over Paul. A woman came climbing up the rocks toward them, her eyes between steel-suit hood and face mask flicking between Paul and his companion. She stopped in front of Paul. Gurney noted the possessive air about her, the way she stood close to Paul. Cheney, this is Gurney Halleck. You've heard me speak of him. She looked at Halleck. Back to Paul. I have heard. Where did the men go on the Maker? They but diverted it, to give us time to save the equipment. Well then. Paul broke off, sniffed the air. There's wind coming. A voice called out from the ridgetop above them. Ho there! The wind! Gurney saw a quickening of motion among the Fremen now, a rushing about and sense of hurry. A thing the worm had not ignited was brought about by fear of the wind. The factory crawler lumbered up onto the dry beach below them, and a way was opened for it among the rocks, and the rocks closed behind it so neatly that the passage escaped his eyes. Have you many such hiding places? Many times many, Paul said. He looked at Cheney. Find Corba. Tell him that Gurney has warned me there are men among the smuggler crew who are not to be trusted. She looked once at Gurney, back to Paul, nodded and was off down the rocks, leaping with a gazelle-like agility. She is your woman. The mother of my firstborn. There's another Leto among the Atreides. Gurney accepted this with only a widening of the eyes. Paul watched the action around them with a critical eye. A curry color dominated the southern sky now, and there came fitful bursts and gusts of wind that whipped dust around their heads. Seal your suit. Paul fastened the mask and hood about his face. Gurney obeyed, thankful for the filters. Which of your crew don't you trust, Gurney? There are some new recruits. Off-worlders. He hesitated, wondering at himself suddenly. Off-worlders. The word had come so easily to his tongue. Yes? They're not like the usual fortune-hunting lot we get. They're tougher. Harkonnen spies. I think, my lord, that they report to no Harkonnen. I suspect they're men of the Imperial Service. They have a hint of Seleucus Secundus about them. Paul shot a sharp glance at him. Sardaukar? Gurney shrugged. They could be. 
but it's well masked. Hall nodded, thinking how easily Gurney had fallen back into the pattern of a Treides retainer, but with subtle reservations, differences. Arrakis had changed him, too. Two hooded Fremen emerged from the broken rock below them, began climbing upward. One of them carried a large black bundle over one shoulder. Where are my crew now? Secure in the rocks below us. We've a cave here. Cave of birds. We'll decide what to do with them after the storm. A voice called from above them. Muad'Dib! All turned at the call, saw a Fremen guard motioning them down to the cave. Paul signaled he had heard. Gurney studied him with a new expression. You're Muad'Dib? You're the Will of the Sand? It's my Fremen name. Gurney turned away, feeling an oppressive sense of foreboding. Half his own crew dead on the sand, the others captive. He did not care about the new recruits, the suspicious ones, but among the others were good men, friends, people for whom he felt responsible. We'll decide what to do with them after the storm. That's what Paul had said. Muad'Dib had said. And Gurney recalled the stories told of Muad'Dib, the Lisan al-Gaib, how he had taken the skin of a Harkonnen officer to make his drumheads, how he was surrounded by death commandos for Daikin who leaped into battle with their death chants on their lips. Him. The two Fremen climbing up the rocks leaped lightly to a shelf in front of Paul. The dark-faced one spoke. All secure, Muad'Dib. We best get below now. Right. Gurney noted the tone of the man's voice, half command and half request. This was the man called Stilgar, another figure of the new Fremen legends. Paul looked at the bundle the other man carried. Korba, what's in the bundle? Twas in the crawler. It had the initial of your friend here, and it contains a balisette. Many times have I heard you speak of the prowess of Gurney Halleck on the balisette. Gurney studied the speaker, seeing the edge of black beard above the still-suit mask, the hawk stare, the chiseled nose. You've a companion who thinks, my lord. Thank you, Stilgar. Stilgar signaled for his companion to pass the bundle to Gurney. Thank your lord, Duke. His countenance earns your admittance here. Gurney accepted the bundle, puzzled by the hard undertones in this conversation. There was an air of challenge about the man, and Gurney wondered if it could be a feeling of jealousy in the Fremen. Here was someone called Gurney Halleck, who'd known Paul even in the times before Arrakis, a man who shared a camaraderie that Stilgar could never invade. You are two I'd have be friends. Stilgar the Fremen is a name of renown. Any killer of Harkonnens I'd feel honored to count among my friends. Will you touch hands with my friend Gurney Halleck, Stilgar? Slowly, Stilgar extended his hand, gripped the heavy calluses of Gurney's sword hand. There are few who haven't heard the name of Gurney Halleck. He released his grip and turned to Paul. The storm comes rushing. At once. <laughs>